0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at CandeoChurch.com. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Candeo, and it's great to worship together today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and begin turning to Acts chapter 8. Last week, we began... Our series, Can I Get a Witness? And this comes from Acts 1 8, which says this But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we've been, we want to track in this series the progression of the early disciples fulfilling this commission from Jesus, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when it comes to the ends of the earth, one of the Coolest things I think that we get to do as a church and with our college ministry is send students every summer overseas. And so last summer we sent uh, two groups of students to two different countries in Southeast Asia uh, for two months the entire summer. And their primary objective when they're there is to engage college students. So a lot of times they'll host English corners or English clubs or uh, go play basketball or whatever, get to know people, build friendships over the course of the summer and in the context of those friendships Seek an opportunity to share the gospel, to work with the long-term missionaries there to help them meet some of the believers in that location. Well, one of my favorite stories from this last summer actually wasn't a a college student that was reached with the gospel, but an older man. There was a uh, tourism guide in one of the countries that our students went to. And they got connected because his brother was in another city in the country that we had some other missionaries in. They gave our students this guy's contact. And this guy's job was basically as tourists came to host excursions for them. And so he would you know, take them to the beach, take them to a volcano, which he took me to that volcano. it was fantastic, it was very cool. Uh, and he would kind of organize these trips. He was a tourism guide, and he would drive them there. And so our students utilized him all summer to drive him around. And as the students were getting to know him, they just began to share with him, because he was a, he's a very personable guy, and they just began to get to know him. They were friendly to him, engaged in him, and one engaged with him. and one day he takes him to the beach. And it's their day off. They go to the beach. And at the beach, he walks up to Logan and he says, hey, why do you guys like pray before you eat? And Logan's like, well, it's a part of our faith. We want to express our gratitude to God for just what he's get, his provision in our life, his blessing. And he, he began to just ask questions about Logan's faith and the faith that he was seeing of the other members of the team. And eventually he said, Logan, you know what? I have been driving people around my entire career. He's in his late 30s. He's like, my entire career, I've been driving people around, organizing trips, and no one has taken as much interest in me as you guys have. You guys have gotten to know me. You've learned about my family. You've engaged me like just a normal person. Most people I pick up, they sit in the back seat. They don't talk to me, but you guys are actually friendly to me. I want to know more about Christianity. And so Logan said, well, why don't you come over to our hotel tomorrow, and we'll pray together. So he comes over, and that night gives his life to Christ. And our team of college students got to lead an older man, not the person they went to reach, to to faith. And it is an incredible story. I was Actually, I got to text him a few months ago to hear how he's doing. He's doing great. Uh, And it was just this awesome story. And what I love about that story is it highlights one of the dynamics for any missions trip. Any missions trip that someone goes on, there's an immediate lens that they put on, an immediate way that they see every person they interact with, and it's this gospel lens. There's just this reality of, man, every person I interact with, there's a very high likelihood that I am the only Christian they will ever encounter. And so it produces this focus, this energy, this urgency, and this desire to share with them, to seek out opportunities to share their faith. And over the course of a summer, what almost every college student we send eventually says is, man, why don't I live like this at home? Here, I'm, it's just so easy for me to see that this is my gospel opportunity, that this is, these are people who have an eternity and I want to engage with them. I might be the only person that ever would share with them. Why don't I live like that at home? Why don't we live like that here? The reason is so many of us see America as a Christian nation, not a mission field. We look around and we don't assume that if we don't share with one of our neighbors or coworkers, that they'll never hear. We assume the opposite. We assume, oh, they have heard. They, they have plenty of opportunities to go to church or hear about Jesus. So we, we lack urgency. And we have subtly adopted this view that America is a Christian nation and not a mission field. This morning, as we look at Acts 8, what we're gonna see is God extending the reach of the church. And one of the main factors in him extending it is because the early Christians saw all their life through the lens of missionary. Everything, every interaction, every person they encountered, everywhere they went, they saw it primarily through the lens of being a missionary. So we're going to look at Acts 8 this morning and see how the, the gospel began to extend beyond Jerusalem. And the question for all of us this morning is, are you looking at all of life through the lens of a missionary? Every person, every interaction, everywhere I go, God has sovereignly put me there for gospel impact. Now, like I said, this series is building off of Acts one8 where Jesus clarifies the range and target of our witnessing. He says, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So last week, Cody hit Jerusalem, which we could say are people who are near and similar to us. This week we're covering Judea and Samaria, which are people who are near, or Judea, people who are near, but not similar. Next week is Samaria, people who are near, but not similar. And then the ends of the earth next, or the week after, not near and not similar. Now Acts 1 through 7 chronicles how the early Christians began to move throughout Jerusalem. But Acts 8, there's a significant shift in Luke's letter. So if you've got a Bible, like I said, Acts 8, 1 through 4 is where we're going to start this morning to see how the gospel began to move beyond Jerusalem into the surrounding regions. Now, this is five or six years after the church began from Pentecost. The church of Jerusalem at this point is growing. It's healthy. Leadership is established. They've even established proto-deacons at this point, choosing seven men to help serve just the physical needs of the church. But opposition begins, begins to arise. And in Acts 6, Stephen gets pulled before the Sanhedrin, and he's the first Christian martyr in Acts 7. And on the heels of that, persecution breaks out against the church. And here's what happens in Acts 8, 1. It says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. That'd be Stephen. On, the day, a severe, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. This is a pivotal moment for the church. Severe persecution breaks out, and the church is forced to scatter. And what does it say? It says all of the church scatters except the apostles. So you have the leadership staying in Jerusalem, most likely to maintain kind of a central hub, but the regular normal Christians are being scattered out from Jerusalem. And where do they go? They go into Judea and Samaria. Judea would have been the Southern surrounding region, still in the nation of Israel. Samaria would have been to the North and that is where they're scattering to. And it's actually through this event that God is now moving the church outside of Jerusalem. God is sovereignly using the persecution against the church to scatter his people. And what were they doing as they scattered? We'll look it back at verse four. It says, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. They're witnessing. they were preaching the word as they went. Normal Christians, not the elite apostles of Jerusalem, just normal Christians going on their way preaching the word. God was using their circumstances to reach people outside of Jerusalem. That's what is happening. This shift in the narrative, this significant moment in the life of the church. Now let's pause here. How does that apply to us? If we are going to have a missionary mindset in life, we have to recognize that God is sovereignly using the circumstances of our life to have gospel impact. God's strategy to reach your neighbor was you buying the house next door. God is sovereignly using circumstances in your life, whether they be good circumstances or hard circumstances like persecution, to move his people to reach people who are lost. And that is exactly how God moved people into Judea and Samaria. Is that how you see your life? Every interaction I have, every town I move to, every person I encounter, God has sovereignly placed me in their life in that moment to have a gospel impact. That's a missionary mindset. God put me on this street. He put my kids in that school. He put me in this office for a reason. And I want to view these spheres of my life through a missionary lens. Now there's an assumption behind all that. If that strategy is going to work, something has to be true. And what that is, is that these early Christians were bold with the gospel. You see, the only way that just the... Sovereign movement of God will have an impact on the people that God places you around is if you are bold with the gospel. It's very unlikely that these early Christians began sharing the gospel for the very first time when they began to scatter, right? This habit of being bold in the gospel, of witnessing for Jesus was probably ingrained in them long before in their daily lives in Jerusalem. This was a cadence of their life to live missionally where God had placed them. That's how they had an impact. Approaching life with a missionary mindset now so that when God began to move them sovereignly, it just continued. It was the natural overflow of their life to continue to preach the word. So Acts 8 begins this shift. The church extending beyond Jerusalem. And Acts 8 continues and it begins to follow one particular story. One person who began to scatter and his name is Philip. Look at verse 5. So it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and the lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is Philip, the evangelist. There are several Philips in the New Testament. This is most likely Philip, the evangelist. He would have been selected as one of the seven, along with Stephen, who was just martyred Philip because of the persecution, has to flee Jerusalem. And as he is fleeing, he does what everyone else we saw, they did as they scattered. They preached The word. So he goes down to this city in Samaria and has this extraordinary experience. He goes, he shares with them, and people begin to come to faith. Demon-possessed people are freed, paralyzed, lamed, are healed. The city begins to rejoice. Later in verse 12, you see, people are responding in faith and are being baptized. In the city, a gospel, such a gospel frenzy begins to happen that the church in Jerusalem hears about it and they say, we have to send reinforcements to help Philip. So they send Barnabas down or Peter and John down. So Peter and John show up to help disciple these new believers, to help establish this church. They even have this encounter with Simon, a sorcerer. And there's just extraordinary stories are coming out of Samaria. Then in the midst of all of this gospel activity, Philip is moved again. An angel speaks to him, tells him, get up and travel down towards Gaza. So he leaves this town in Samaria, begins to travel down towards Gaza, and on his way along the road, he sees a chariot. And in the chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch, a high official in the queen's court. And so he walks up, and this Ethiopian eunuch just so happens to have the scroll of Isaiah. This is wild, I mean, this thing in modern day times would be worth millions of dollars. And this man is sitting in a chariot on the row with a scroll of Isaiah and turned to no, like, where would he be turned to in Isaiah except Isaiah 53? Probably the clearest description in the Old Testament of the atonement of Jesus. So here Philip walks up, sees this Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah 53, and the spirit tells him, go, go get in the chariot. So he gets in, he explains the gospel to this Ethiopian official the Ethiopian official surrenders his life to Christ, is baptized, and then they come out of the water, and it seems like Philip is teleported by the Spirit. Pretty cool. Uh, it could be that the Spirit simply moved him, but as we'll see in a second in verse 40, uh, it says that he, Philip appeared. So I think that he was spiritually teleported. It was pretty cool. So he's teleported, has this incredible experience, you know, leads this guy to Christ, is teleported by the Spirit, shows up in verse 40. Look down at verse 40 in chapter 8. So Philip appeared in, in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip has these incredible moments, these incredible stories, back to back to back, every step of the way. God is moving Philip, and Philip is preaching the gospel. This missionary mindset ingrained in him, so that all God had to do was move Philip, and he knew there'd be gospel impact. So Philip is having these extraordinary experiences being used by God. God is sovereignly moving him to place him in the right place at the right time. And then Philip gets to Caesarea and God stops him. God halts him in his tracks. And the next time we hear about Philip is actually all the way in Acts 21. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and he passes through Caesarea and he says this in Acts 21, eight through nine. The next day we left and came to Caesarea where we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who is one of the seven and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied." That's it. That's the rest we know about Philip the evangelist. That after this extraordinary encounter of leading the Ethiopian official to Christ, he makes his way to Caesarea and then God keeps him there. This is probably years and years down the road. And Philip has settled in Caesarea He got married and they had four daughters. And his daughters were known for their character and their ministry. They were virgins who prophesied. I love that. Just this cool story of Philip showing up in Jerusalem, probably getting involved in the church and then God moving him through the circumstances that were occurring in his life, that he was having gospel impact, these extraordinary experiences. And then all of a sudden he stops and settles in Caesarea. And who can imagine? the impact that he would have had over decades of faithful ministry in that community. An awesome dad discipling his daughters. The impact of his ministry in Acts 8 is incredible, but the impact of the longevity of his ministry in Acts 21 was probably just as incredible. And that's very possibly how God reached Caesarea by planting Philip there. And once again, Philip saw his life through the lens of his as a missionary, even in his own home. So we were thinking about that story as an elder team. And Cody pointed out that in so many ways that this story models your typical salt company student. If you think about it, there's so many students that flock to Cedar Falls for a short period of time. We have the opportunity to engage them with the gospel, to disciple them, to equip them. And then they're sent out. And like many people in their early 20s, mid-20s, there's a lot of movement in those years. You're in one place for two years. You're in one place for another two years. You're in another place for a year or so. As you're beginning to get established. And then usually what happens in the normal course of life is somewhere in your 30s or low 30s, you begin to like settle down and you end up staying in a community for multiple decades. There's these extraordinary events. Salt Company students, you come in, you have an incredible encounter with God. You begin reading the the Bible for yourself. You begin to have the chance to lead your peers to Christ. You might even be leading a connection group. You get chances to go overseas. You graduate. Maybe you help a church plant. Maybe you go back overseas, or maybe you move to a city where there's a church that you help. And you begin to have these incredible experiences in your 20s, and then at some point or another, God establishes you in a community where you have an impact over the longevity of your time there. Two people who embody this story so well are Mary and Nick Sinner. I love Nick and Mary Sinner. So they went to Iowa State. Nick is from Alta. They both showed up there at Iowa State and began to have an incredible impact when they were at Salt Company there. They meet, they get married after their time and these incredible experiences during their time in Salt Company, leading people to Christ, discipling people, they move to Mankato, Minnesota. And there they live there for two years. Mary has this incredible ministry with Sudanese refugees. They're there, they have a church that they're impacting. And then two years after being in Mankato, they hear about this church plant coming to Cedar Falls, Iowa. And they're asked, would you guys help us start this church in a community where there's a bunch of college students and we wanna reach it for the gospel? And so they say, yes. So they moved from Mankato to Cedar Falls to help start Candeo. And again, if any of you know Mary or Nick, every single one of you could attest to the significant contribution they made to our church. Just the amazing ways that they served inside these walls, but even the impact they had outside these walls. I don't know if I've heard of anyone having a greater impact in their neighborhood and on their street than Mary Sinner, the way that she loved the moms in that neighborhood and on that street. Nick, he served as an elder for seven years at our church, and every single one of our elders would tell you Nick was invaluable in contributing to establish this church. And then this summer, Nick and Mary moved to Alta, Iowa, where Nick grew up. He's going to farm there. And they are back a part of the church that he grew up in and more than likely they're gonna be there for a very, very, very long time. Possibly the rest of their life. But it's just this amazing quintessential story of two SALT students having an incredible experience in college, moving and loving a community for a few years, having an impact there, moving and helping a church get established and strengthened. And now moving back to the school district of Alta Aurelia to have a huge impact on that community for the next 20 years, next 30 years. They have three kids, they have a fourth on the way, they're gonna raise those kids to be marked by integrity and ministry, and they're gonna have an impact on Alta. College students, for so many of you, the next four to six years will be marked by a lot of really cool ministry moments getting to see peers come to Christ, getting to see people that you never thought would follow Jesus make a decision for him and be discipled. Seeing your friends move overseas or you yourself considering that. Seeing other friends help start churches or you helping to start churches. Other friends moving to cities and joining churches where you can have a huge contribution to that church. And for many of you, the next six years is gonna be pretty wild and it's gonna be really fun. I don't know if you're going to get to be like teleported in the spirit, but that would be super cool, but probably as much of an impact God is going to have in your life in the next six years and through your life in the next six years, he'll probably have just as great of an impact in the longevity of your ministry as you begin to settle down in a community. And for 20 years, establish yourself in a community and faithfully witness, patiently witness, see in your life through the lens of a missionary in there. And that's the vision of our college ministry. A significant portion of our state will end up in one of three places for at least four years, Ames, Iowa City, or Cedar Falls. And we as a church want to engage you with the gospel while you're here, disciple you, and then send you out to leverage the rest of your life for Christ, whether that be overseas, at a church plant, or in Alta, Iowa. That's our vision. That God would use his sovereign movements of your life to have significant gospel impact in our state, in our nation, and across our world. So that's the story of Philip. God sovereignly using the persecution to scatter him and the church to have gospel impact. But Philip's story isn't the only one that is tracked from this scattering. Look at Acts 11. Another shift is about to happen in the, books, in the book of Acts, and it begins in chapter 11. So the first person that Luke tracks is Philip. Here's the second group of people that Luke tracks in verse 19 of chapter 11. It says this, Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a large number of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So once again, the church is being scattered. They're being faithful witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And God is moving them from Phoenicia to Cyprus and then to Antioch. And they're sharing the gospel at first with just Jews. And then you get a couple bold guys from Cyprus and Cyrene who begin to share with some Greeks. And when this happens, the gospel explodes. Huge numbers of people begin to come to faith large numbers. They have this huge impact in Antioch. Again, so much so that the church in Jerusalem hears about it. And just like they sent Peter and John to Samaria, now they send Barnabas down to Antioch to come and help establish this church. He gets there, is so blown away and so overwhelmed by the incredible ministry that's happening. He's like, I need help. So he runs down to Tarsus, gets Saul. Saul, we skipped the story, surrenders his life to Christ on the road to Damascus. He's not ravaging the church anymore. He is now a leader in the church. So he brings Saul up to Antioch, and the two of them begin to work to establish this church for an entire year. They teach, they raise up elders, they disciple new believers, and then another shift happens in Acts 13. This is another pivotal moment, Acts 13, in the book of Acts, a hinge point in the story. Look at Acts 13.1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. What's happening here? Well, this is the first missionary of Paul, missionary journey of Paul. Now, notice there's a difference, a shift from Acts 8. In Acts 8, you could say that God was active in moving moving people, but humans, people, believers, were largely passive, right? God active in moving them, sovereignly moving them, but humans, their job was just to re- respond to the natural movements or the sovereign movements of God in their life by being faithful witnesses, Here, there's a shift. God is still absolutely involved. The Holy Spirit, while they're praying, speaks to them. But there's now a human agent, right? The church is now beginning to be intentional about reaching and extending to places where the church does not exist. Acts 8, God, humans are faithful. Acts 13, God, humans are intentional. The shift is happening where they begin recognizing communities where there is a high gospel need where they were going to send people intentionally to plant churches. They would go, they'd preach the gospel in the town. They would uh, see many people be made disciples. They would establish a church, begin congregating them in worship services. They'd establish elders over them. And after, once they felt good, they'd move to the next town. Then they'd work their way back, strengthening the believers. You can see kind of the progression, the pattern of that in Acts 14. This was their mission, fairly simple. Preach the word. Number of people come to faith, disciple them, baptize them, form a church, appoint elders, move to the next town. Why was Paul doing that? Well, for Paul, the great commission that Jesus gave, go therefore and make disciples, could actually only be fulfilled in the context of a local church. Why? Well, if you think about the great commission in Matthew 28, what is included in that? Go therefore and make disciples and what? Baptize. Baptize. What is baptism? Everywhere in the New Testament, in Acts, in the epistles, baptism is seen as the mark of bringing someone into the family of God. It's the way you bring someone into God's family of the lo- the, in the local expression of that family. So the only way that we could fulfill the Great Commission the only way Paul could fulfill that, to go and make disciples and baptize them, is if he had a church to baptize them into. So, Paul started new churches. Starting churches for Paul was not the byproduct of evangelism, starting churches for Paul was the mission. Because the most effective way to evangelize a community was to start a church. Now there's an objection here as we begin to think about how this applies to our town. For maybe a common objection or common question that arises when we think about what this looks like in America is this, aren't there a lot of churches in America, right? It makes a lot of sense in these communities that Paul is going to, Lystra, places like that, Philippi, where there is no church. Of course you need to start a church if you're going to baptize people into that church and teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. But what about all these communities here in America that already have churches? Why not better churches before new churches? Well, Tim Keller is a pastor and author in New York. And if you've been at Candeo for a while, it won't shock you to know that Tim Keller has written the gold standard article on why we plant churches. Uh, It's a fantastic article. If you want to read the whole thing, it's easy to find. Just Tim Keller church planting. It will pop right up. Here's the statement that Tim Keller makes in response to that. He says the vigorous, continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for one, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in a city, and two, the continual corporate renewal and revival of existing churches in a city. Nothing else, not crusades outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing mega church, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic extensive church planting. This is an eyebrow raising statement, but to those who have done any study at all, it is not even controversial. What is Tim Keller saying? He's saying first new churches are the best at reaching non-believers and new people. Why? When you plant a church, there is a focused energy on reaching out to people who aren't a part of your church. Why? Because you're in survival mode. You are inherently designed to be on the offensive, to share the gospel. Studies find that 60 to 80% of people at a church plant were not a part of a church before they began to join that church. On the other hand, 80 to 90% of new people at an established older congregation are there through transfer growth, meaning they were a part of another church and then just simply joined your church. Here's the second reason, when done right, new churches actually rejuvenate and help existing churches, not hurt them. How could that be? Well, for the sending church, there's leadership vacuums that people have to step into. It forces the sending church to continue to be kingdom-minded, not self-absorbed. But for the churches in the area, It can cause them to self-reflect on their effectiveness. They might see new ideas that are working in their community and adopt them themselves. Even the church plant might see some people come to faith, and then that person, really that new church plant is not the right context for them, and they join an existing church. All of those are reasons why existing churches might be aided by a church plant. I'll add another reason. In 2019, Lifeway Research did a study and reported that 4,500 churches in 2019 closed their doors, whereas only 3,000 churches were started that year. So just to keep up with church decline, we have to plant new churches. At this point in America, we're not even talking about extending the ball down the field. We're just talking about how to maintain our gospel influence in churches right now. Paul understood Jesus' commands as a command to plant churches. That was true for their day, and that is still true for our day. And when you see our country not as a Christian nation, but as a mission field, it begins to make sense why we too need to plant churches. Now, there's an extraordinary cost in planting churches. Look back at Acts 13.1. Who are these leaders? Right, you got five leaders listed there. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Mannion, and Saul. Two of those are sent. Two fifths of the elder team are sent to plant churches. Now what's the situation in Antioch? Well, we just saw in chapter 11, it would be safe to assume that there are now thousands of Christians a part of this church in Antioch, right? They twice made a point to say, large numbers were being added to their congregation. It's safe to assume that this is a large, dynamic, growing church with tons of leadership needs. It's not like this large church is looking at Paul and Barnabas and saying, hey, there's not much for you to do here. Why don't you go find another community? And uh, I think we're going to be fine here with just three elders. We don't need five. No, this would have been an incredible burden for the church of Antioch to shoulder. Simeon, Lucius, and Mania deserve our respect and honor because they would have taken on tremendous responsibility with Saul and Barnabas being sent out. And yet, they did it. Why? Because of the gospel need that they saw in the regions that surrounded them. There's a cost to church planting, but it's worth it. And I don't have to tell you that there is a cost to church planting. We have now sent over 100 members from our church to help with the efforts of church planting. And every single one of those were contributing in significant ways to our church family. In fact, 12 of those 100 were either elders or elders wives. We as a church family know the cost associated with church planting, but we have also seen the powerful way that God has used it. The fact that there are now more people who are gathered this morning, not in this building, but outside of it in the churches that we've planted. There is a tremendous cost, but a tremendous impact that comes with it. It's hard to send friends and families and leaders to new places, but we have to. I called a girl who's a sophomore at Minnesota State last month. I got in her contact from a girl who went on the Syracuse church plant and said, hey, I have a friend in, at Mankato that has to be a part of what's going on there in a few years. So I called her and she kept saying to me over and over again, Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know why you chose Mankato or Minnesota State, but thank you. And she said, there is nothing here for us as college students. Now that's a little bit of an overstatement because there are some great churches in Mankato and I've met some of the pastors and they are great pastors and there's faithful believers. But the city of Mankato estimates that there's 25,000 college students and one of the pastors I talked to, he said that only 175 college students are involved in a church or ministry. Now, Is that because the soil is so hard in Mankato? Well, I've talked to at least probably 10 to 15 Minnesota State students in the last six months and pretty much every single one of them says the exact same thing to me. We all want a church, we just don't have one. Now there's a breakdown somewhere, there's a few churches, I don't know, but like the absolute fact is there is a high need for more churches, for gospel reinforcements in Mankato. One student I called, I said, hey, how do you think that she's a senior at Minnesota State right now? I said, hey, how do you think students at Minnesota State will respond to Salt Company coming to your school? She said, they want it. They want salt. They just don't know it because all they do is drink, but they want it. There is a huge need and a huge opportunity for a church to come and have a major impact in Mankato. And so there's a tremendous cost to all of us, to my family, to our church family, and us going but it's absolutely worth it because there's students and members there that need to be reached. And there are churches that need reinforcements. And this is the pattern that we see in scripture, right? John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will not produce fruit. J.D. Greer says that there is gaining by losing. This is the pattern that not only do we see in the church, but in Jesus himself. He said to his disciples, just as the father sent me, I send you. Jesus was the first one who left his home for lost people to come and to seek and save the lost. And now we have the opportunity to follow in his footsteps. All right. Some of you might be thinking, what does this have to do with me? Right. Where, what is my role in all of this? right? Sending, moving. I, I'm fair, you might be thinking, I'm fairly certain, maybe I'm wrong, that I'm going to be in the Cedar Valley the rest of my life. What is my role in all of this? Well, one of my favorite stories is the story of Mrs. Bartlett. Mrs. Bartlett was a Sunday, Sunday school teacher in Spurgeon's Church in the 18th century at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And when she was 53, In 1859, her husband died because of the cholera epidemic, and she had a heart condition. She was a faithful servant her entire life in the life of the church, and now at age 53, she thought, my time time serving is coming to an end, I'm gonna slow down, back off. Well, one of the church leaders approached her and asked her, hey, would you be willing to teach a Sunday school class for us for high school girls? And reluctantly, she said yes, but only on a one-month trial. So she shows up her first Sunday in 1859 at the age of 53 and three high school senior girls show up. And so she teaches the Bible study with them, gets to know them. She shows up the next week, the next week, and the fourth week. By the fourth week, she had 14 seniors in high school and she decided, okay, I will carry on. I'll continue to do this. Well, Mrs. Bartlett's class began to gain momentum. Eventually, 18 months later, she had 50 high school girls in her class. Then 50 went to 80, 80 went to 100, and then 100 went to 300 high schoolers. The cl- class grew so large that they began to meet in the large lecture room, meaning that they had to kick the superintendent of Spurgeon's Sunday school class out of his main class. Six, by, six years later, in 1856, 1865, she was averaging 700 to 800 women attending her Bible study. They'd expanded her class from high schoolers all the way to women in their 70s. And what started as a class for senior girls in high school was now expanded from teenage girls to women of all ages. She taught this class for 16 years and died at the age of 69. And over the course of those 16 years, it's estimated that her class alone was responsible for bringing 1,000 new members into their church and helping them come to faith. The impact of her class was extraordinary. One of the stories is that there was a day where six prostitutes showed up to her class intentionally coming to disrupt the class. As they walked in, one of the prostitutes heard what Mrs. Bartlett was saying and instantly put her faith in Christ. And then would go on to become a missionary. And it's just so fun to imagine just the impact that she would have had far beyond London as she was investing in high school girls and young women and women who'd become missionaries and women who would help in the hundreds of church plants that Spurgeon's church was responsible for. Mrs. Bartlett, with a heart condition at age 53, a widow from age 53 to 69, had an incredible impact on the region surrounding London. Why? Because she was faithful where she was at. You have a role in us reaching our state, our nation, and our world. And that might be through the movement of God in your life, but that also might be by teaching a high school girls Bible study this year. It might be by teaching inside our basics and beliefs class, investing in the next generation that God will move so that they are ready when they move to be faithful witnesses wherever God sends them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that all of us are in this room because somebody else was a witness to us. God, I so often lose sight of that. When I want to be comfortable and complacent, when I don't want to be a witness, I forget that you used somebody else in my life to help me understand the gospel. God, that I have the opportunity to be sent. And in the same way Jesus was sent to rescue and redeem us, he now sends us with a message, a message of hope, a message of redemption to people who are lost and broken. God, I pray that we'd have eyes to see the ways that you're moving us. God, that you would cultivate in each of us a missionary mindset to see every person, every interaction, every place we go as a unique opportunity sovereignly ordained by you for gospel impact. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes and break our hearts for the communities all around us that are still in desperate need of healthy churches where disciples will be made, where disciples will be brought into the family of God and be taught to follow you. God, open our eyes to those communities and open our hands to sacrificially send, so that you have a witness in every place in our communities and the regions around us into to the ends of the earth. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.